You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Um, we have several things to talk about today. First, Chuck, how was the Texas tour extravaganza last week? Texas was great. I mean, really, I, we have more members in Texas than any state in the country. I think that's more than Minnesota now, too. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Texas is one of these places where our conversation is just really meshes well. Okay, I'll draw a contrast with Bellingham uh, the week before. So I get done speaking in Bellingham, and one of the guys in the audience raises their hand, and he asks this question. He goes, I really appreciate everything you're saying. I think you're right on, but I think you do your message a disservice because you don't talk at all about climate change or population overshoot. And you don't talk about obesity and, you, you know, and he goes on and on about all the, you know, all the standard things that everybody else talks about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he, yeah. And he says, you know, your argument would be so much stronger if you actually included those things. And I go, well, you know, I, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad you feel that way. I said, I actually don't talk about those things because that those aren't the things that like inspire me. That's, that's not the reason I'm here. I'm here because of this insolvency problem, but, you know, you'll be happy to know a lot of people who do care about those things, listen to our message and say, wow, uh, there's a lot in that message that really resonates with us. Mm-hmm, when I go to Texas, I never get that question, right? <laughs> and it's not that there yeah. aren't people there who, you know, care about those issues or think about those issues. Um, but, you know, those issues are not driving the, uh, the, the conversation and the debate in in the mainstream of, of the conversation in Texas policy circles. So when when we're there talking about the things the way we talk about them, we're very much kind of meeting Texans where they are. And mm-hmm. the, the you know, it's a good starting spot for everybody there who wants to have a conversation about these things. This makes me think of that image in, I think it appears in the curbside chat often, where you've got a picture of a woman speaking in front of city council and you have some images. I'll try to find this and link it in the podcast notes, but it's like you have words like these concepts that this person mentioned, you know, health and safety and environmental issues and better schools and all these things. And like the fact that when you try to appeal to city council about those issues, um, it's hard to get through. But when you talk about the finances, turns out all of those things often fall in line. And so much of what we advocate for at Strong Towns is rooted in the financial, but turns out to have all these other great benefits. So that was in the pitch deck that I put together last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I I think in terms of like framing our conversation, uh, we, we don't start with those issues and sometimes we talk about them, but you know, always in a way that fits our, our core conversation. But yeah, a lot of people find that to be a really good way to talk about things. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I want to tell you one story about Texas. Yeah. So, and this, this really kind of encapsulates the way the week went last week. Um, so I had a day in Austin that started out with a, a public lecture. It was very well attended. 
Then I had two meetings with staff people, and they were a, a broad group of staff people from many different departments, two separate meetings. Both of them, I thought, went really well. One, one was a little bit tough <laughs> until we had like some breakthroughs, and then I think things got uh, like a, a little bit easier. But they were really good conversations. But at the end of the day, they had scheduled a half hour for me to meet with the mayor. And wow. yeah, this is the mayor of Austin. You know, this is a big, pretty big deal. Yeah, this is a pretty big deal. This is a, you know, a large city uh, in the United States. I, I'm assuming that if the mayor of, the, of Austin called the White House, uh, maybe he wouldn't get directly through the president, but he'd probably get through to somebody important, you know, unlike me. <laughs> you know, so so this is a person whose, you know, time is at a premium and, you know, clearly has, uh, has lots of important things going on. So I was scheduled for half an hour and I'm thinking, I, I don't have an agenda for this meeting. Like, what am I going to talk to this guy for half an hour about? But I'm really flattered and I'm glad he made room for me. So I get to the I get to the meeting and the aide, you know, for the mayor comes out and says, well, hey, uh, things are really busy here today. We're running behind schedule. You get 20 minutes. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I like I, I don't deserve 20 minutes with the mayor of Austin. So I'll, I'll take 20 minutes. That That is really an honor. Thank you. So they bring me into his office. He's not there. Uh, mm -hmm. I sit and wait in the office for another 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming I'm down to 10 minutes now with the mayor. Mm -hmm. He finally shows up, walks in the room, sits down on the table across from me. And he wasn't rude. He wasn't gruff by any means, but he's a busy guy. He said, mm -hmm. okay, why are you here? Like, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. An hour later, uh, I walk <laughs> out of his office after having had the, the most, you know, delightful conversation, uh, very smart guy, totally get it, was very interested in the, the message we had, wanted to talk about different ways of framing things and talking about things, uh, different ways of moving ahead. Clearly, it's been a lot of time thinking about these things. And at the end of the meeting, you know, gives me his business card and wrote his personal cell phone on it and said, please call wow. me. Yeah, if anything, uh, you know, if, you, if anything comes up that you want to talk about. So this was how my whole week in Texas went. And it's, it is, you know, always when we go to Texas, there's a lot of enthusiasm. People see it, it being very applicable to their lives. And, uh, you know, we get, a, we get a good reaction. Well, I think that story is a real testament to the growth of the Strong Towns movement. I mean, do you think that would have happened two years ago, even a year ago, that you would have been able to talk for an hour with the mayor of a major U.S. city? Um, yes. And, I mean, no, no. And yes, I, I'll say, I mean, I, I've, I've had the pleasure to like the mayor of Memphis. I had a chance to talk to a couple of years ago for a long time. And cool. boy, what a beautiful man. I mean, we had a great, great conversation. I think the thing now, and this is really a testament to you and to Yuri and to our board and to, you know, all of our members and, and everybody who's kind of participating here, the, the, there's such a broader range of things that we're conversant on now. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, the, the conversation went in all kinds of directions. And, you know, I feel rather confident Thanks to, you know, the, the things that we've discussed here and, and the way we've kind of vetted some of these notions, uh, you know, on our site, in, in these podcasts, in these interviews, you know, I, I feel very confident having these conversations. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that the growing 
it's definitely true that the strength of this movement is what got us in the door. And mm-hmm. I think the depth of the conversation is what kept me in there. And, you know, hear. that's all part of what we've been able to do here. Yeah. It seems like Texas is, like you said, I can see how Texas is very ripe for this message because not only do they obviously have, you know, huge issues with huge highways and, you know, tons of spread out developments and like overextending of resources, but also they have the mentality. I mean, I'm going to stereotype Texas here, but like from what I know, you know, there's a very mentality of like do it yourself and like independence and, you know, people making their own decisions and not being wasteful with money. So while their design may not indicate that, I can also see how like they're very ripe for this message and hopefully it makes some inroads there. I, I do think there's a, there's a spirit of rugged independence and um, in a sense, you know, the, the kind of bootstrapping mythology of America is still very strong in Texas, uh, if not in reality, at least in, in you know, myth right. that we like to tell about ourselves. I, I do get a, a perverse pleasure in telling, and I say this in almost every talk I give in Texas, you know, what is, I ask them, what is the one state that Texas kind of sneers at and looks down upon? And then you sit there and wait, and then people start to say California. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes, what is the difference between Texas and California? And in the context of the conversation we're having, I point out, you know, California got started 20 years earlier than you did in this whole experiment. Um, you know, they didn't have to have air conditioning to build suburban tract houses. You did. So you, you, your growth started later and you're just catching up now. And, and you know, Texas, California uh, 1996 is really just Texas 2016. I mean, you're just you're just a couple decades behind them. And what do they think of when you say that? Well, they, I, I, I hearing that, or is that offensive? Well, it, it is okay. I never like start the conversation that way. Yeah, it, it's always in the context of like, look, there's this illusion of wealth. Things are not as they appear. Uh, you kind of know this in your gut, but I'm showing it to you in front of your face now, so you can start to come to grips with it. And then that's kind of like the. The, the kicker, right? Like the, the thing we say we're not, we actually are. Um, and th- that's one of those, I think, like turning points in the conversation where it's like, okay, you know, you, you can say like that person's an alcoholic, that person has a drinking problem, that person's a bum. And then, you know, you get pulled over for DWI and you're like, well, maybe it's me, right? That, that's like the sobering wake up moment. And, you know, that's, yeah, I, I kind of uh, <laughs> watch people's eyes go, oh, yeah, okay, maybe we're not that different. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. So I also had an event last week, which doesn't usually happen, but. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, well, Chuck was busy when they this organization asked us to do something, so I stepped up because it's in my neighborhood. Um, I spoke at the Empty Storefronts Conference in Madison, Wisconsin. And it was a really interesting setup. It was just a one-day thing, and all the events were held in empty buildings. So our like headquarters for the event was this huge old shopco, which is like a, a Kmart basically, um, uh, out of business now and like completely empty. So that was weird to be in this empty like big box store. Yeah. Um, 
And they kind of, they like made do, you know, they had good a setup of like, you know, chairs and lighting and sound and all that, but like the bathrooms weren't working. So we had to like go next door to use those. So it was a little, uh, DIY, but, um, and then the other breakout sessions were, uh, in other various empty things. Like mine was in an empty paint factory, former paint factory. So, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, um, I talked just for 30 minutes about some strong towns principles and kind of tied them to the, uh, empty storefronts conversation and how to fill empty storefronts. So yeah, it, it went well. It was an interesting group of people too. So are you, uh, are you ready to go out on the road then? No, I, <laughs> I am not very confident in my public speaking. I had to practice a lot to feel good about it. Oh, come even, on. I, I've, I've heard you speak before. You do a very great job. You do a really good job. But like talking one-on-one with you is different than speaking for a group of yeah. however many people. Although this was a pretty, it turned out to be a pretty small group. It was like maybe 20 people. So yeah. that wasn't, that wasn't super intimidating. Well, I, I have to say. Baby steps. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the early days of me going around sharing this message uh, was, you know, a lot of terror and a lot of like, you know, nervousness over very small crowds of people by comparison to where we're at today. Um, I will say it's funny because I don't get nervous giving talks. I mean, I can, I can stand in front of a thousand people and not get uptight. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I come back and speak in my hometown, I can speak to a group of 10 people here and I get nervous. Because you know all them yeah. and you know where you live and stuff. Yeah. yeah well, and it's like, um, you know, psychologically, uh, you know, when I'm speaking in Texas to the, like last week, it was the, uh, finance officers association was kind of the, the anchor thing that created this whole week of, of going around Texas. When, when I speak in there, there's you know, 400 people in the audience. Um, some of them like know who I am and know me, but they don't know me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, your family, your childhood. Oh, and all yeah. <laughs> when you speak here, like someone knows, you know, uh, my cousin or my uncle or my dad or, you know, they remember when I was like the drummer in high school and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you think about like the awkwardness of like your high school reunion, um, you know, where it's like people remember who you used to be, uh, mm-hmm. but that's like very different than who you are now. I mean, none of us want to be judged as the person we are when we were 16 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but when you live in your hometown and you stand up to be heard, that that's who you are again. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's actually been something that I've like had to try to get over because like mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I'm, I am sure that the people hearing me are not thinking that because like when I, you know, like one of the guys I went to high school with is running for mayor right now. Yeah. And I have to say. Uh, there's times when like, I look at him and I'm like, I remember what he was like in high school. Um, (laughs) you know, one of the guys that I went to school with is running for, uh, state for representative, try to go to Washington, DC. And, you know, there's a big part of me that's like, I remember what he was like in high school. Um, and that's, you know, then I get beyond that. I'm like, well, that's really not fair because, you know, I don't want them to like, well, I know what Chuck was like in high school. And I'm, it's not like I was a bad kid, but you know, it was awkward and weird, you know, when you're 16. Yeah. You grow and you change. So I, I keep telling myself, like, you know, just have an open mind. And then I, I find that I can. 
I'm assuming most people are that way too. You know, I'm not going to judge people by what they were like in high school. So this week you're going to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and that's somewhere that you've been before, right? Yeah. I think to this exact same conference, the yeah. Smart Growth Conference. I have to say that quietly because we don't say Smart Growth. No, it's cool. I mean, that's what they call their conference. It's really good. Um, last year I was there, and uh, it went really well. I mean, it went so well that they're asking me to come back and be the, the keynote this year. So that. <laughs> so are you going to talk about something different, or were they just like, you were good, like, let's just replay this? <laughs> Um, you know, this year they, they do want me, I mean, I think Michelle set this up. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the question was, do you, do you want to do the same thing? And I'm like, no, let's talk transportation. Mm, Um, so we're going to, we're going to do that. But I also am on like a panel, uh, later on to talk about the flooding issues they have. Um, cause they had like epic floods this year. Um, mm-hmm. All right. and we're going to talk about that from a, a resiliency standpoint. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm an outsider. I, I can say some very, um, I was just going to use the word heartless, but it, it won't be heartless. I can, I can maybe speak some hard truths that mm-hmm. you can't say when you're, when you're from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there, there, there are like ramifications to building in a swamp. Um, you know, yes. I mean, uh, over time, when you build in a swamp and you drain the swamp in order to build in it, you either commit to uh, incredibly expensive and incredibly intensive, uh, you know, construction and maintenance of infrastructure forever, or you're you're going to have tragedy like this occur. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ancient Rome went through this. Uh, when ancient Rome got to the point where they were having trouble building uh, because they were built out, you know, which is uh, mm-hmm. they uh, they opened up a bunch of land. And this was, you know, in Caesar's time, they opened up a bunch of land by draining the swamps. Yeah. And then in the centuries later, as they those drainage systems filled in and the wherewithal and sophistication of the Roman Empire diminished they found that all the rich homes, which is what they built in these flooded, these, these drained areas, all the rich homes started to flood and nobody knew what to do. And they couldn't fix the pipes. They couldn't fix the drainage system. And they actually wound up having lots of the, the city just become uninhabitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're human. We're repeating the same mistakes in a lot of ways. And, you know, but we'll be talking about that a little bit this week. Good. Yeah. So I want to take a minute to welcome our newest members to Strong Towns. Daniel Higby from Kenmore, New York. Jason Alter from Omaha, Nebraska. Melissa Darty O'Hara from Bloomington, Illinois. Matthew Edmond from Boise, Idaho. And Norman Marshall from White River Junction, Vermont. So welcome, everyone. And thank you for becoming members of Strong Towns. I'm, a, I'm on our site right now. And um, this month, we have 158 new members and renewals, which is incredible. Good. Yeah. Except when you consider we're that. enticed by the, uh, yeah, yeah. Bucks and stuff. Yeah. Except when you consider that next month, um, where I want to say we have like 400 people who are, uh, who's me- renewal. Yeah. Memberships expire, yeah. <laughs> uh, because next month is our member. We, we have a member drive every November. And so, yeah, we've got this like huge, huge list of people. Uh, who expire next month. So that's you. Uh, you. You should be getting, you know, reminders for us to go and uh, 
and renew, please do that. And then we can spend like all of our energy on, uh, on adding new members as we go through the, the next few weeks. So thank yeah, you everybody. And renewing takes like two minutes, so it should not be too hard at all. No, we made it even easier than last year. So yeah, real easy. So today is Halloween, and I want to hear what you're doing for Halloween, Chuck. But I also wanted to tell our listeners that if you're listening to this today and you're going out trick-or-treating with children in your life um, or just uh, answering the door and giving candy to people coming by, uh, we want to invite you guys to do a little activity. This was inspired by Michelle Erfurt, our uh, Strong Towns Pathfinder. And she had the idea to kind of ask people to just observe how walkability is working in your neighborhood on this day when uh, suddenly there are tons of people out walking who might normally not do that. And is it comfortable and safe to walk? Um, is the, is the neighborhood set up for this amount of people walking? You know, how about, is there more car traffic? So we have a a little set of questions that we invite you to consider and I'll link to that in the show notes and yeah, just email me afterwards if you have any observations and we'll, we'll kind of put those together hopefully on our site later this week. Yeah. Does it change the way people drive? That, that, Mm -hmm. that's the one thing that, you know, is fascinating to me is that when you get these concentrations of people, yeah, all of a sudden people start driving differently. They start, they start actually driving (laughs) safer. They go slower. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive because it's one of these things where like, well, we don't walk because it's not safe, but yet if a whole bunch more people walked, it would be really, really safe because people would drive slower. Yeah. So is trick or treating going to be different? For yes. you now that you're in a more uh, yeah. downtown neighborhood, no, do your kids still trick or treat? Are they too old for that? No, oh gosh, no. Okay. They they have Good. costumes Good. at school. In fact, I'm leaving here in like 20 minutes to go to Stella's school to help out with the. Yeah, no, they're they're still. I mean, nine and twelve. Um, I'm, I'm guessing we got a couple more years with Chloe at least, the oldest one. Yeah. So. I mean- Free candy is free candy. Yeah. I went from living in walk score zero to walk score like 80 something. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is going to be a lot different. I want to say in the 20 years we lived at our old house, we maybe had four trick-or-treaters. <laughs> um, wow. We were told to... Where, where did your kids go to trick-or-treat? Oh, we would, uh, we would go somewhere else. We would... Like um, drive into town. Yeah. We would leave like a... They, a basket of candy on the porch in case someone came by. And, mm-hmm. you know, when they were really little, we would go to like my parents and my grandparents, you know, the, my mother and father-in-laws mm-hmm. and some neighbors and stuff like that. But it was all, all, all driving. Right. And then hop out. Yeah. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, we started going actually to the neighborhood we now live in. Um, mm-hmm. And we would show up and walk around and we had friends in this neighborhood. So we would you know go with them. Uh, tonight we were told have at least 500 pieces of candy to hand out. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm so excited about. Um, we're having some neighbors over. It's our first time actually having company in our house. Uh, still don't have it like fully furnished, but you know, we've got a card table and things and our old house hasn't sold yet. So we're still like in transition, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm, my wife is going to go with the kids and, uh, I'm going to stay home and hand out candy. And I'm really, really thrilled. We've got like everybody in the neighborhoods decorated their houses. Uh, Yeah, I've kind of have a little bit of music and stuff and it's going to be really fun. We've uh, we've not had I've I've never experienced this before like this. I mean, I grew up on a farm 
And, you know, we didn't have trick-or-treaters out there either, really, in any mm -hmm. amount. So it's going to be a new thing, and I'm, I'm excited about it. How about you? Uh, yeah, I've also not had... I mean, when I was growing up, I would be able to trick-or-treat, but since college, I've never lived in a place... I've always been in apartments, so I've never gotten to, like, answer the door and give out candy. So someday that will happen. But for now, uh, I just went to a friend's house for a party this weekend. Uh, what costumes are your daughters dressing up as? Well, they are both, um, you know, female heroines. Uh, oh, awesome. Chloe is Hermione Granger. Ah, oh, great. Yep. Classic. Yeah. And Stella was that last year. And I'm not sure, like, I think it was some deal they made. Like, you get to be it this year and I get to be it next year. Nice. Last year, Chloe was Princess Leia. Mm. And this year, that costume has been somehow retrofitted and then added on to. And it's now Padme Amidala. So... Oh, perfect. We have a Harry Potter theme going and a Star Wars theme going, and they've they've they they agree to like swap uh, for this year. So they're they're both thrilled. Um, the only tension we have is that Stella, the the younger one, uh, who's Padme, the Padme costume that she has has a belt with a gun in it. Um, yeah, but the gun is not like it doesn't come in and out. It's actually like technically like uh, a plastic like just the butt of the gun so there's yeah. no like yeah. it can't come out and it's actually isn't a full gun it just kind of like looks from the side like it might be a gun yeah and so she is freaked out because they're not allowed to have any weapons at school which i'm like okay cool i'm with you I'm like, yeah. but that's really not like a gun is it and she like oh my gosh dad i could get expelled and da 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 Okay. So we had to have, so I'm like, okay, I, I don't want to like make you stress out. So we had to come up this weekend with like some new kind of belt that she could wear that would still be cool, but not maybe yeah. as cool as the other one, which she'll wear in the evening. So the, the drama of fourth grade. Let's talk about the continuing saga of the Portland housing affordability conversation. We have another article today that continues that and kind of responds to some of the arguments. Um, yeah. Tell me about this article, Jeff. I, I kind of feel like this might be it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking there might be other things we do uh, in this conversation, but you know, the, the, the amount of, uh, of like discussion and, you know, people, I was just going to say angry comments. People weren't really angry as much as they were kind of maybe dismissive a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, prompted me to stay up till two in the morning last night. And like, I'm going to write this whole thing and just like be done with it instead of writing it in like pieces where I could actually go to sleep at night uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, finish things and, and move on. So, yeah, I, I, I have taken issue with what I've called the fetish that uh, planners have and others have with density, uh, that's long been a, a theme in a conversation here. But when I was in Portland, it, it really brought home this kind of contrast that I've seen in other places. And in Portland, it was even a, a sharper contrast than I've seen in, in other parts of the country, where they've gone in and put in, you know, build it and they will come kind of rail investments along the theory that, you know, rail investments are better than auto investments. Okay. 
but then zoned around those rail stops for really high density development, which I get the theory of transit oriented development as well. Um, the problem is that the combination of the massive investment and then the upzoning uh, stagnates properties. It, it essentially bestows upon people, you know, millionaire status and mm-hmm. encourages them to hang on to their properties while other people do the hard work of, of building the city. Uh, their investment continues to appreciate at, you know, wildly high rates, rates higher than you're going to get in the stock market or in some type of bond or money market account. So hang on to your land and let other people do the hard work. And then at the end of the day, when you need to, you can cash out and, and make a ton of money. And so the, the development pattern tends to be these kind of all or nothing, huge luxury towers, big expensive buildings. Maybe we'll force them to build some affordable housing, maybe not. Uh, and then, you know, in a sea of properties that are declining and stagnating. And I simply made the point that you need a down zone. You actually need to end the fetish uh, of density, quit thinking that density is going to solve your problems, and actually go back to building a city. You know, start small uh, and work your way up. And, you know, as part of that conversation, you, you need to make sure that every neighborhood can continue to mature. You can't put neighborhoods under glass or, you know, freeze them in amber. We talk about that a lot here, too, at Strong Towns. The idea is to create a development pattern that starts small and grows incrementally. And if we do that, we can not only, you know, meet the housing needs of a place like Portland without huge amounts of risk and without, you know, putting billions of dollars on the line, uh, but we can actually do it in a way that is affordable and will include people in the wealth creation and the growth as opposed to displace them and kind of cast them aside the way Portland's development pattern is doing now. And it also provides opportunities for smaller scale developers to come in and like build a duplex instead of paying, you know, millions of dollars to buy land. That's you're going to have a 20 story high rise on like that's that's not affordable for most small scale developers. So, well, yeah, and I, I think one of the problems you have in a place like Portland is that the way that you've the way that they've gone about doing their zoning and this fetish with density is essentially priced out of the market all the small developers and means you have to be like a big player in order to 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 be part of the system that's just fine with the planners who like the big towers and the big developments but it's not great for the the you know the underemployed or the the people who would like to do small things Mm -hmm. uh the, the the problem that you've got and no one's brought this up yet um the problem that you've got implementing the approach that i would suggest is that you don't have enough small developers you actually need to get the incremental development alliance people to come to town and train, you know, a few hundred people to actually go out and work like this. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, they're kind of dependent right now on big corporations and big developers and, and people with lots of money. And that's a very fragile place to be. They actually need to have a, a more thriving ecosystem, and that's going to mean a lot more smaller players. I think this was the article that most, like, elucidated this concept for me. So I hope that that's helpful to people who are reading it. And it looks like we've got another engaging comment section going. Yeah, we do. I've been trying to be more active today because I'm actually here in the office as opposed to the the last couple of weeks. But it's, it's, it's just frustrating to me when you step back and you realize that 
massive growth in Portland means one and a half percent growth a year. And, you know, I don't care if you're talking about uh, rainforests or stock markets or, you know, babies. One and a half percent growth a year is not like some tipping point, put you over the edge, spike prices, you know, by 50 percent kind of thing. One and a half percent growth a year is something we should be able to handle, especially a place like Portland that has spent billions and billions in anticipation of growth. How can you have, you know, taxes spike, property value spike, everything spike? Well, it's spiking because essentially all that growth is being channeled into one, you know, just a tiny, tiny band of possible outlets instead of a, a broader way. And, and part of that is because, you know, people resist upzoning in their neighborhoods and they resist that next increment of development, even if it is just an ADU or, or something small. But a, a, a major, major part of it is that the way they've chosen to handle it is with these bizarre upzonings that really distort and stagnate the whole market. So, yeah, it, it's counterintuitive. Actually, allow less to get more. Um, but that's what they need to do to unfreeze and unstick their uh, their their housing market. Their council has declared a housing emergency. Um, yeah, I think once we start talking about the moral dimension of pricing people out, uh, we we got to give up on this fetish of density and realize that it's going to be a lot of small little things that will solve this, not like one big, you know, one big project or two. The conversation on, you know, oh, we're predicting such and such percentage of growth every year and, oh, my gosh, this place is just going to explode. It just sounds very familiar to me. It sounds like our conversations about all these suburbs on the edge of town that have said, oh, we, you know, hundreds of people are going to move in here every month. And so we have to build all these new houses and all these new roads. And when the people don't show up, then you have all this wasted space. So. It- it, the thing that makes me mad, and and, and I, I, you know, I haven't called out anybody by name. I met with a lot of people in Portland, and I'm, I'm I don't want people to like not invite me to town because they think I'm going to, you know, embarrass them. Uh, like that's not that's not what we're about. Um, but I, I have to say, the thing that made me mad, like made me angry when I was there, was kind of the smug, you know, like we know what we're doing, we know better we've got this all planned out. We've got this all figured out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- w- when clearly you can step back and like, you know, no, this isn't working. Like you don't know what you're doing. Stop pretending that you do and start like listening to people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I see, I, I use the example of my parents' farm, uh, you know, when I was, uh, when, uh, you know, when growing up and everything, I use that in the post as an example. Mm-hmm. It, it, in a way, and it's a small town version of this and, and the dynamics are different, but the the cultural kind of, um, you know, the, the cultural backdrop to it is very similar. Uh, it, it The idea that people want to be here and people want to throw tons of money at us and people think we're great is such a comforting, like self-reinforcing narrative. And when you combine that with the like the belief, this kind of smug notion that we can go out because we know how to solve this problem and we'll just zone for high density and we'll plan for this and we'll, we, you know, we'll come in and, and, you know, build this and that here and there. It, it is, it, it, it's just, to me, it's immoral and it's 
way too convenient for people who don't have to live with the consequences of their policies. Yeah. Um, you know, the people who are being hurt by this have no say in it at all and have no other option. And to me, you know, I met some of those people. Those are those are tragic situations and those should not be. So we should probably wrap up for today, but I want to mention one thing, which is last, uh, last time we recorded this podcast, we talked about your dental issues and somebody the day after we published that sent me this email that was like, um, why are you guys talking about dental problems on this podcast? Like that's just a waste (laughs) of time. And I was like, I responded, you know, politely that, well, you know, if you're not interested, you can just skip it. And this is our sort of casual Monday chat podcast. Feel free to not listen to it and just listen to the Thursday one. But then a couple of days after that, somebody was responding to, uh, we requested testimonials for upcoming member drive. And somebody specifically said, I love the podcast, especially when Chuck talks about like his personal life, like his dental issues. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, trying to please everyone can't always succeed, but yeah. I think we're doing all right. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And and people have been very kind to me. Um, you know, I, I last week in Texas, um, you know, there, I wind up doing all these things during the day where people are eating and I can't really eat, you know, uh, well, I could. I can take my like, you know, retainer thing out and then I look like a jack-o'-lantern, um, but I can't talk then. Um, I can talk, but I family like, boo, boo. so, <laughs> so I spent a lot of time last week, like being with everybody. And then when I'm done, like, you know, going and eating by myself in my hotel room, <laughs> mm. uh, but two weeks from today, uh, we'll get the, the stuff done and, uh, then, um, you know, we'll see what happens from there, but I appreciate the kindness. Everybody's been very nice and boy, I, I gotta say I feel like I'm talking really weird and I, I, I'm sure that, Oh, you sound totally normal. Yeah. I'm sure that it does to you. It just strange to me. And, you know, especially after a day of talking, like the sides of your mouth just hurt and just Uh really weird. I'll be, I'll be very happy when this is done. Um, Uh that being said, like last week, well, last week as I'm complaining about this, right? Like, um, my wife's uh, business, though, but my wife is a news reporter. And, you know, if you know anything about the news business, it's been going through these huge convulsions, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how do you actually get people to pay for quality journalism? It's really hard. Uh, your question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her, her uh, employer, which is Gannett, which is like does the USA Today and owns her local newspaper as well, had a huge round of just like cross the board layoffs and they lost seven people, um, including some of her good friends and some people that have been at the paper for like 30 years, 30 plus years. Wow. Really hard, really, really hard. And I would call, you know, she'd be, (laughs) you know, my wife is a a beautiful person, but just, you know, crying and, and very like, I feel bad for these people. And, you know, just really, really hard week for her. And I'm like, yeah, I got this annoying thing with my mouth, you know, like whatever perspective. Yeah. Perspective. Okay. Well, we'll uh, say goodbye to everyone for today, but we'll have a new podcast for you on Thursday. So take care, everyone. Thanks everybody. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.